0: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Draper. It is really a surreal pleasure to be back. I don't think I've been back since about my 10-year reunion and a lot of things have changed. (laughs) Um, You know, I was so excited to get the invitation uh, to give this talk, but at the same time, when I first sat down to construct it, all of a sudden I was kind of flabbergasted because most of the talks that I'm used to giving are kind of you know here's the data here's what we did here's what we found so here's where we're going to go next and this was one of the first talks I've had in a really long time that was just talking about you know greater things that contribute to society or help people with medicine and health and global good and that kind of thing uh, so while it was a, a great invitation and I do work in those areas it was also daunting believe it or not um, I also realized that it could be you know a seminar series of you know a whole semester long and I had to scope it down so I'm kind of scoping it back to my own personal background for things that I personally considered towards a greater good, but the subject is just so broad that I decided to change it to a greater good instead of the greater good, since it is such a broad topic. So as uh, Dr. Draper mentioned, I uh, did my degree here at Trinity in biochemistry and graduated back in the 1900s. (laughs) I actually started as a biology major and then figured out actually that I liked the puzzle nature and the mechanisms of chemistry more, Um, but I was really committed to also studying abroad and I wanted to graduate on time, so the easiest way for me to do all that and get the chemistry in as well as studying in England was to switch to biochemistry, which was at least at the time kind of a hybrid of the two disciplines. Uh, Two of the main influences in my life here at Trinity were uh, Doc Heron as well as Dr. Church. Uh, Doc Heron was my organic chemistry professor and uh, completely terrified me at the beginning. He used to (laughs) give out this manual that he wrote himself on organic chemistry and in uh, the beginning he said, okay, here are the lectures that you need to learn before class and he taught his whole class in the style of the Socratic method and so what that meant was you had to show up prepared and he kept a black notebook of right and wrong answers and just conducted the whole class by questioning. And if it wasn't questioning, you were actually drawn to the board to draw out mechanisms how to get from point A to point B in front of the rest of the class. Um, So while it was kind of terrifying at the beginning, it it turned into a a great way of learning um, and an invaluable experience. Uh, It was also Doc Heron that went on to become my advisor and uh, Well, I did you know, well at Trinity and I got you know, good grades in at least my chemistry classes. I was not by any stretch of the imagination a straight-A student, uh, but one of the things that always stuck with me that Doc Heron said is, you know, Jane, it's not what you do in the classroom. At the end of the day, it's what you do in the lab, and I thought that was pretty neat and it was, it was useful for me. Uh, the other person uh, was Dr. Bill Church, who is still here today and I'm thrilled to see in the back. Now, Uh, Dr. Church was, what, brand new? (laughs) And teaching neuroscience uh, when I was here and I think I was your first or second class, I think. Um, The thing about, uh, the the things about Dr. Church that I really appreciate is in his neuroscience class, he was also one of the few uh, professors that I had that let students go off on certain tangents of neuroscience and say, okay, here, you go learn about this, go figure it out and then come back and teach the class and we'll have a discussion And a shared discussion about what you learned and what you can teach everybody else and that was really an invaluable way of learning. The other thing that helped prepare me for what I was going to do next is that it was Dr. Church that escorted me and another chemistry student to my first ACS meeting in Boston which was a ton of fun and invaluable. Um, ACS is the American Chemical Society for those that you don't know and it's this huge meeting that happens about twice a year and it's really kind of overwhelming when you first show up as an undergraduate that you know hasn't done any research and doesn't know anything about the real world Um, and that was really an invaluable experience and helped set me up for the interviewing process and things that were going to come next so between these two guys they helped me find my way and figure out what I was going to do and where I was going to start now that said as I mentioned when I was an undergrad I actually didn't have any research experience and I was kind of sheltered and naive or had attitude in certain ways and I said I'll never do research and I'm never living in New Jersey. Um, So of course my first job was living in New Jersey doing research. Uh, (laughs) The good news is I got a great job at uh, Merck in natural products, um, which was part of basic chemistry at the time. Now Merck is a pretty neat company that started out with a guy years ago back in Darmstadt, Germany, and grew all the way from being a single drug store into this billion dollar uh, pharma giant. So what I did at Merck at the time was look at uh, plants primarily that were coming in from the Costa Rican rainforest, and before the area was completely raised and the land was developed, we would look for leads or hits for active compounds for assays such as uh, hypertension or AIDS or cancer uh, to see if there was potentially a new blockbuster drug from one of those elements in the plants that the company could build on and put in their pipeline. so here I showed just a couple of their blockbusters. Zocor is a cholesterol-lowering drug, and this actually builds on technology out of the drug Mevacor, and Mevacor actually came out of that department years ago in natural products. This one is Fosamex for uh, uh, osteoarthritis, or, or osteoporosis, Cozar is, I think, antihypertensive, and Singulair is an asthma drug. One of the other neat things uh, about Merck is that they're quite philanthropic and committed to education. Um, which was one of the things I liked about the company. Now, while I was at Merck, though, I had a great first experience working in chemistry and looking for these initial leads, but, you know, everything that I was working on, you you, you couldn't see it. You had to figure out the structure of the compounds and then go from there, but it was nothing that you could hold in your hand, and during that time became more and more interested in materials that you could hold in your hand that were going to help the body and help people get up and stay up and stay around. A direct example of that is, Gore-Tex, one of the first biomaterials, if you will, that people were using for vascular grafts in the body was uh, was Gore-Tex. And so, you know, I was fascinated that you could put it on your back and it was great for, you know, north face, so you could put it inside your veins and it was going to keep you living longer. So I decided to build up my engineering background, uh, primarily in material science, to figure out what was next for me. All uh, right, So if, throughout this talk, I have a couple quotes of things that... Today, I think are funny that people said to me and so I wanted to insert those here or there. Um, When I was at Merck from 90 to 93, uh, they used to call it Mother Merck at the time uh, because at the time they were doing really well and considered one of the the top Fortune 500 companies and all this kind of thing. And so there was kind of a lot of pride and a lot of job security and one of the other chemists said to me, you know, why would you leave? Why would you go to grad school? What if you never get another good job again? And in my case, that actually made me want to run faster, but it's just something to keep in mind when you you build up these experiences and collect these things and figure out what you want to do next. Uh, So I just chose Northwestern uh, in Illinois. And the reason I chose Northwestern is I looked around a lot of biomedical engineering departments and they had a specific division, uh, primarily in the dental school, that was for biomaterials. So this was a good entry point for me to combine on the chemistry that I used to do and then also get into material science. Um, okay, how many of you here know anybody that has a stent? Cardiovascular stent? Okay, a handful of people. So back in the early 90s, um, Julio Palmas, actually in the mid 80s, had developed uh, the balloon expandable stent, and this is one of the things that really changed the field of cardiovascular therapy. Uh, if you had, blocked blood vessels years ago, it used to be the common way to deal with that was open heart surgery, to open you up, take your mammaries, circulate them back down into your other important arteries and then just forget about the blocked arteries and then provide new blood flow. This is obviously incredibly invasive, incredibly expensive, incredibly hard to heal up from, so the field of minimally invasive surgery has been growing like gangbusters ever since, and so now people can go in through the femoral, the carotid, just snake a catheter up, put a stent inside to open up a blood vessel and get you out of bed within a day without all the healing. It was Julio Palmaz that came up with this idea of okay, instead of just putting a balloon and um, having that stent there, let's have the balloon, expand the stent, the stent stays, the balloon comes back down through the catheter and then it helped prevent something called restenosis, which is if the artery starts reclogging after a period of time. Um, some of the early materials they used for this weren't so great yet and they had some thrombogenic properties and so some people were getting blood clots. So I was posed with the task of expanding on a project to have a polymer coating that would go on top of this stent to make it easier for the body and have the body have it treated as biocompatible so that the body wouldn't reject it. So I was building on a project that started with a polyacrylamide base, and this is just a really hydrophilic polymer that's very common in the world. Um, And what I decided to do is to add in something called polyethylene glycol chains to it. So I had this waffle network that it was like a two-layer defense, if you will, against proteins and cells that were coming down from the body and it acts with this kind of steric repulsion. Um, The funny thing is that my advisor initially said, you know, that won't work. Um, (laughs) We've tried something similar, it it doesn't work, but I'm kind of stubborn and not really good sometimes at listening to people. And so I still played with some solvent systems and found that if I played with the solutions that you're doing the polymerization in, you could play with swelling the network selectively. So I made the first layer, swelled it up, put the second layer down, locked it in, and found a system that worked for me. Um, and so the good news is that because of that won't work, I got my first patent. Um, and so you know, I say this tongue in cheek today, you know, uh, Dr. Keeley is still, you know, it, a friend of mine and all as well. It created some havoc in my life at the time, but it's these kind of words that are actually inviting to me today to hear that won't work because it means that, okay, let's find a way that it does, as you know Edison years ago first figured out as well. Uh, so go forward 15 years. They found out today that there are better materials for making the stent out of that you don't actually need the coatings for. Um, but one of the lasting things that's still a good area of research is taking coatings such as the IPN or other things and using it for tissue engineering. So tissue engineering back in the 90s was still in its early days, it's pretty common today. Uh, but we were just figuring out how to tell cells and proteins where to go and what, where not to go so that we could dictate what was going on on surfaces that were either going to be for uh, sensors or for microarrays or for implants in your body where maybe you, you know, have a hip and you want it to grasp quickly and you want to get out of bed faster than however long it used to take to heal up. So my group worked with a combination of semiconductor technology with masks and UV lights the way they do for computer chips. And then we would selectively take off part of the photoresist, put chemistry 1 down, take off the rest of it, put chemistry 2 down, so that we could tell cells and proteins where to go and where not to go. So our focus at the time was on bone cell, osteoblasts, to get them to grow and get people out of bed faster. Um, During this time, though, I realized, okay, I'm doing all this work on coating of metals. So let's see, I've got these polymer coatings on metals. I'm thinking about putting them in the body. The body's filled with a lot of salt water and it runs on a battery. And this might lead to a couple problems though because we're setting up a circuit here. Uh, And I really wanted to look into that aspect of the electrochemistry. Um, So I completely switched gears for my thesis work compared to my master's work and did an electrochemistry project. Uh, Titanium is the material that I chose to work with since it's uh, so common in orthopedics for hip and knee replacements or dental implants. It was Sir John Charnley years ago that was an orthopedic surgeon and pioneered the hip replacement which is now one of the most common operations both in the UK as well as uh, elsewhere in the world. So today uh, companies such as Depew or J&J make millions of dollars off of these materials that have been improving over the ages and expand on the uh, people, the abilities of people to walk around, get out of bed sooner and live healthy long lives. It was Branemark uh, that was working a lot with dental implants and um, in the dental implant case, this guy back in Sweden realized that, okay, if I put these implants in and then did a study and he said, I want to pull it out and look at what happened, he realized he had a really hard time pulling him out. The reason he had such a hard time pulling him out was because of this uh, phenomenon that goes on with titanium in the body and that interface that they today call osseointegration. The bone cells and the mineral matrix and everything else really adheres well to the titanium and it becomes a very very strong bond and this is why titanium today is such a good material in orthopedics. So, Working with these kind of materials I uh, found some fun with the electrochemistry as well as how to use some polymer coating stuff, and played with the oxide layers of the materials. Uh, Down here I wanted to mention Dr. Eugene Lautenschlager, and by the way this was Dr. Jeremy Gilbert who I did this work with. Lautenschlager though was the head of the biomaterials division at Northwestern, he's actually one of the fathers of biomaterials. Uh, Now, Lautenschlager was in some ways kind of an old German kind of engineer that kind of missed the days that you could make your grad student paint your house. Um, but, you know, the man had a heart of gold once you get past that. He was uh, responsible and had some of the key patents for bone glue cement that's used in orthopedics today uh, for people where they don't want to only rely on the osseointegration integration and they want to get you out of bed within a day, so they put cement inside your cavity. The trick with the bone cement is that you have to figure out with these hard acrylics how to get the air out so that you can put the blew in, have it set correctly, and have the healing start. Now, a lot of that money from those patents went to Northwestern, and a lot of it actually went to him. I, you know, He could have put that back into getting the painter for the house, or, whatever, or the next car, or what have you. But what Dr. Lautenschlager did was actually put it back into the grad students. And it was because of Dr. Lautenschlager that we had expanded training grants, and that we were able to go to conferences and present our data, as well as get a nice meal at those conferences and without that, the, uh, myself as well as the other people I studied along with, I uh, really would have been further behind learning how to speak in front of people, learning how to present scientific data, and having the experience of that in the first place. I, so It was time for a change up again. Um, it was total serendipity to me, but during my, about halfway through grad school, I went out to California for a friend of mine's wedding And an older friend of mine was a postdoc at a place called Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And he said, oh, well, if you're going to be driving through the area in California, why don't you come, you know, give a seminar on your research and we'll give you a free lunch. And I was kind of like, "Ah, free lunch, free lunch. (laughs) Um, And so jumped at the opportunity with with the talk I already had made. I had no idea at the time, uh, but at this place, Lawrence Livermore, there was this thing called the Medical Technology Program. And the Medical Technology Program was started by a bunch of laser physicists that were there from the days of SDI or Star Wars. Do you guys hate to even know what Star Wars is today? Blowing up things in the sky in a protection defense system, all this kind of thing. And they actually kind of graduated from, OK, we know we can blow up things in the sky. If we harness down the energy, if we put these lasers in through catheters, why don't we blow up blood clots in the brain instead? And that was the genesis of the medical technology program. So it turned out that the physicists were also buddies with the chemists at uh, Livermore and there was this big project called Yucca Mountain that is defunct today, but for many many years people were working on this underground repository for nuclear waste in New Mexico. Uh, So unbeknownst to me at the time, because I was still green and kind of focused on my little northwestern world, um, the corrosion properties that I was studying for the body with battery and the salt water and the metal were really similar to things that these guys cared about in Yucca Mountain with groundwater coming down, with canisters of metal that were protecting spent nuclear fuel rods and what was going to happen over a million years. And it turned out that that seminar that I gave turned into an invitation to do my thesis research out at Livermore where I got to play with their toys uh, and then fly back and still coordinate with my own advisor back at Northwestern, fly back for my proposal, fly back for my defense. so that worked out pretty well. <laughs> so I picked up, moved out to California for a couple of years, finished my research out there, and had this exposure to these real multidisciplinary projects and got to leverage the medical work I was doing with programmatic stuff that had to do with a field called stockpiled stewardship. Uh, so at the time, another fun quote today to me was the, from Dennis Matthews, who at the time was in charge of the medical technology program. And Dennis said, you know, like, oh, no, you're finishing up. Fine, you want to do a postdoc, but no, don't leave the country. You know, it'll be too hard to get back in. Don't, don't do that. You've already met some people. You're set up at this lab, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I really liked chocolate, and I really liked the mountains. So I really wanted to go to Switzerland <laughs> and was able to land a postdoc at a, at a place called Eteha, which is like the Swiss Federal Institute, with a, a joint appointment at the, the University of Zurich. And here I was able to do a postdoc and work with a couple of guys, um, one in a biomedical engineering lab and another one at a material science lab and combine the work I had done in polymers and the work I had done in metals and uh, corrosion projects or electrochemistry, if you will, to combine those for sensor work. Uh, the ironic thing at the time was when I first left Dr. Healy's lab to go to kind of corrosion based from the polymers and the tissue engineering, in some ways I thought I was kind of closing a real... Um, Because this guy's name is Jeff Hubble, and he's kind of like this father of tissue engineering and wound healing, and is kind of a god in the field. And at the time, I was like, I'll never meet Hubble, I'll never be able to work with him, I'm gonna do corrosion. And uh, it turned out that a couple years later, I was able to combine the two and did get to work in his group as well as with Marcus Texter. Both of you were still in uh, Switzerland. Um, He's now down in Lausanne, though, and Marcus is still up in Zurich. So I worked on a combination of applied as well as basic research, uh, and I just wanted to show one example here of how the, the research can eventually get out there. Uh, so this is Janos Borsch, who is a great Hungarian guy who's still out at Zurich, and he is an optical waveguide expert in addition to other things. And I had worked with some sensor surfaces, I had worked with some fluorescence work and proteins and this kind of thing, uh, but I'd never worked with optical waveguides before. And optical waveguides are pretty neat because you can couple light in and there's an evanescent field that you can generate. And the sensitivity of that field that you get and interactions of proteins in the surface is much more sensitive than if you look at a whole general surface with just fluorescence only and binding events that take place between uh, specific spots where you put chemistry A and things that are coming down where you're looking for something to bind or not bind. And so this company, ZeptaSense, said, okay, well, why don't we exploit these waveguide things, make better microchips than people have made before so that we can have the sensitivity and the specificity for our protein arrays and still use the lithography to pattern stuff so that we get this great readout. Um, So this is just one example where that basic research can go into an application and everybody can win and companies can start and products come out. Uh, I also wanted to mention Samuele Tozati who is my first Swiss friend and the guy that actually housed me when I first went over for my uh, postdoc interviews Um, and just as a Kind of funny aside, similarly kind of realized quickly how much I liked the chocolate there and it always kind of stuck with me that one day he said to me like, Jane, you know, you you, you better be careful because if you keep eating chocolate like that, you go home as two Janes. So the same guy, Dennis Matthews, about two years later that said, you know, like you shouldn't leave the country, invited me back to go to some meetings at Livermore and changed his mind and said that, yeah, going to Switzerland was one of the best things that I ever done. Um, which was funny and useful after going through the, the stress of worrying about the right decision. Uh, so, after my postdoc, I did join Livermore as a uh, research scientist. It attracted me that they had this ability to do these big uh, interdisciplinary projects as well as all the national security issues. So, I sat in a combination of physics and chemistry for about 10 years there and worked on multidisciplinary teams on a bunch of different projects from medical devices to carbon capture. Um, I want to show this slide just because their main project in the moment, where the majority of the money goes into, is called NIF and that stands for the National Ignition Facility. Uh, Their slogan is bringing star power to Earth because what they're trying to do inside of here is in a very big chamber create a very small reaction with helium and and hydrogen and lasers to uh, create fusion and enough neutrons that you get what's called sustainable burn. So they're trying to get more energy out of the reaction than they're putting into the reaction, basically making a little star. Uh, so for my living years, I just wanted to mention a couple of the projects that I either ran or participated in. Uh, one of the ones that was the most fun to me was um, having a, re- a research grant from NIH. Uh, this gave me a lot of autonomy, I could do whatever I wanted with the money according to the outline that I had written to NIH for the grant in the first place, Um, as opposed to some of the directly programmatic concerns that I had at Livermore. Um, The basis of this project was that when I was working back at Northwestern, we were doing the photolithography in conjunction with the chemistry. It used to take us multiple days to get the chemistry right and use the masks, and the high power UV sources and all this kind of thing to put things down and get it the way we wanted to. And it just that took too long. I'm too impatient for that. So I was trying to come up with a way to accelerate the process to do the lithography. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know there's so many things out in nature that Mother Nature already does with the sun, with our hemoglobin, there are these porphyrins. And if you excite those even with relatively low energy broadband sources, you can still get really powerful chemical reactions to take place with something that they call singlet oxygen. And so I figured out how to just dissolve some of those in solution of alcohol and kind of swab it on something that had topography to it and use that in kind of a one step process to take a resist off. I changed the chemistry of the resist for the record and build up different kinds of chemistry so I could have areas where things stuck and then areas where things didn't stick. So a process that used to take us multiple days was down to kind of within a day. So with this kind of stuff, um, we could tell cells where to go or we could try and coax fibroblasts into being something more like a nerve cell, or we could control the area of cells and the shape of the cells. They also started finding out at the time that, okay, if you constrain it to this size, it might change how much of the protein it can kick out. If you let it go this big, it's going to change as if the cell is differentiated and it's ready to become a hepatocyte or that kind of thing. So it was a basic research, but with fun tangents into stuff that can lead towards um, artificial organs someday. Uh, Another project which is still going on, but I'm not very involved today was with regard to shape memory polymers. Uh, You might have heard of shape memory alloys and titanium is one of these and things that with heat can change their shape a little bit. Uh, Well there are certain polymers that can act the same way but the nice thing with the polymers is that it takes a much lower temperature and the strain release that you get, the the change in shape and size is much more drastic than with the metals. And so Duncan Maitland, who is today um, in Academia Texas, uh, spearheaded a project that was led by NIH to make foams in what we called baskets at the time. And he said, okay, well, you know, if we can exploit these uh, chamomile polymers and we can take this in its primary shape of a foam, heat it up, compress it into a little tiny pellet, or in this case, like a long, skinny tube that would fit inside a catheter, and then on a cue, whether that's through the pH or through a voltage or through a temperature change, get it to, to actuate so that it goes back to the full size, we can either catch blood clots or we can fill in aneurysms. And so Duncan today also runs a company, Shape Memory Therapeutics, out in Texas, which is trying to bring some of those products to market. Uh, Tom Wilson is one of the integral polymer chemists on this. He's still back at the lab and contributes to programmatic stuff as well as uh, this medical stuff. And this is a picture of Keith Herron, who used to be um, an intern with me. He used to go to college in Georgia and then he spent his summers out in California and then went to work at the lab before his thesis work that he did with Duncan and is today still working in shape marine polymers and working on a company of his, company of his own. Um, so my f- one of my favorite projects, though, uh, it was actually a project that I inherited at the lab. Um, so it probably sounds like a funny word, but the lab actually cared about something in the national security interest of bio-agro-terrorism. So way back in now 2001, um, you may recall or not recall that there was a big outbreak of something called foot and mouth disease virus. Does anybody remember or have you heard of this? Um, A few. (laughs) And so it's this virus that affects cloven animals and it's extremely contagious, uh, cuts down on their milk supply, can be very lethal, uh, but based on the fact that it's very contagious, there was a lot of hysteria. and. killing that had to be done of herds primarily in England but in other places around the world too. It caused so much damage with the 2001 outbreak that it caused the economy 18 billion dollars. So when you start looking at it that way, if you're in a national lab setting, people start worrying, oh, what if somebody ever did this as a terrorist event to create havoc in the world? Uh, so I inherited this project where they said, okay, well, the way it works today is you have to go get your sample, get off the farm, go back to a clinical lab run your samples come back three days later and then give them the result and that doesn't work when you've got a really contagious pathogen that's a danger to the economy and a danger to all these animals um, the most sensitive way of detecting uh what's going on is using pcr which stands for the polymerase chain reaction and relates to amplifying dna so you can see if that virus or that bacteria for int- for instance is present. Uh, This is a picture of Kerry Mullis who won the uh, 1993 uh, Nobel Prize and he figured out when he was at Cetus, a company out in California, how to quickly and easily amplify the DNA by taking it together and apart, together and apart, thermocycling it so that if you go apart you can get in primers certain little sections of DNA if it is uh, a good match for that or not and then you make a copy and then you take the next two, you separate it a little bit, you make a copy. And so you go through these cycles to get two to the end, amplification of the DNA if what you're looking for is present. Uh, And this kind of revolutionized the way molecular diagnostics uh, were done. Uh, Some of the problems with this though is that you pretty much still need a centralized lab to do this. You need expensive instrumentation to run that thermocycling, you need optics to do the fluorescence, you need uh, big boxes that cost a lot to sit on there and process your samples. Um, a couple years ago, maybe like 2008, a Japanese group, ICANN, came up with a way of instead of thermocycling, making the DNA copy at just one temperature. So instead of having this tightly bound DNA and then going way over here and making a copy, tightly bound, way a copy, they've decided, okay, let's find an enzyme that we can just make it quasi-stable, have them separate a little bit, loosen up, get those primers in there, and still copy the DNA. This greatly reduces your need for instrumentation, which is critical to people like me that want to work out in the field because you don't have the instrumentation of um, those thermal cyclers. Now the other thing is because it made so much more, orders of magnitude more, DNA is that you no longer needed to rely on fluorescence. So I borrowed a technique from old water chemistry and used a secondary action depending on how much magnesium is still in the solution. And so if you have The material presence is going to amplify your solution goes from purple to blue. If the target you're looking for is not there, it stays purple. So now you don't need the fluorimeters as well. Uh, The big companies like Cepheid charge about $10,000 for these boxes and so I'm working towards stuff that now you know four or five dollars out in the field can accomplish the same kind of goals. Uh, So in this initial project we constructed these uh, prototype tubes which had a long Q-tip at the end that was meant for taking out, swabbing a cow's nose. It goes into the vial and gets shut forever. We transferred the DNA from the swab onto a little piece of filter paper, basically, and then put it in the soup. Put it on a heater to find out if the right stuff was there or not. Um, okay, so around this time, I had been running the, became the leader of the medical technology program, uh, and. After a number of years in physics, I had projects in global security for medical countermeasures. I had contributed to these NIH projects, and I got to play with carbon capture as well. Um, but life got messy. <laughs> I, at one point in time, was told, like, oh, in a couple days, you're supposed to brief Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House, on all the leveraging things we do with the medical, te- medical technology program between the medical devices as well as uh, the programmatic concerns. Uh, and then a couple days later, I get a call that, okay, there's a major reorg at the lab and your group is dissolved. <laughs> so, okay, that's a little bit of a shock. Uh, I helped place some of the people in my group in other companies. A few of them went, stayed in physics, some went to engineering, uh, one or two went to biology, although there weren't many biologists in the group. Um, and around the same time, I, I had a young family uh, and a husband that was more the startup guy and I was the stable one with benefits. He got a call saying, oh, uh, you know, if you want it, there's this good job for you out in the the East Coast. Uh, So it turned out in retrospect that although life is messy, um, it can still be, and the word here is missing, but it should be fun. (laughs) Um, So my husband took that job. I ended up handing off my projects, wound down my lab, resigned, gave up my salary, uh, got my kids ready to move, emptied my house and all that kind of stuff, and um, moved to Pennsylvania. So, I went for some inspiration, because that was a big change at the time. And, uh, you know, there are a number of people that have done some amazing things starting at somewhat meager beginnings. Uh, Alan and Gates are perfect examples of that, where they create these products that are invaluable to the world today. Whether or not you have politics against Microsoft, that's all fair. Uh, Allen also does the Brain Institute today. Gates has his huge Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that is doing a lot of good for the world in eradicating malaria, promoting education. Um, Apple started in not even his own garage, but his parents' garage, which makes me feel better. Uh, Google started in a garage, Facebook started in a dorm room. Now, a lot of you guys, you probably recognize Branson, but do you know who this is? Anybody know who that is? It's a guy named Bert Rutan. He is an aerospace guy. And huge proponent of space exploration. Um, A while back, I saw him give a TED talk that was really neat. And on one hand, he was kind of completely bashing NASA. He's like, "What the hell are you doing? You haven't gone. You went to the moon years ago. What are you doing now? Why aren't we on Mars?" Uh, And he is today helping Galactic Enterprises and working with people like Branson as well as Elon Musk, so that we can get to Mars and so that we can colonize and so we can push the envelope the way we kind of, in some ways, did more in the '60s with Aviation and aerospace than we have been over the past couple of years due to whatever constraints politically or financially. Uh, but one of the things that Bert Utan said in his TED talk that really stuck with me is that fun is defendable. He, he brought up that when people were first working with uh, personal computers, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd call their buddy and say like, hey, I got this new computer. I can play Frogger all day. And that, that nobody knew what the computers were really going to be useful for, how how integrated they were going to be in our lives, and how useful they would be, and that that's okay sometimes. And so you know that gave me uh, motivation uh, to do my own thing, and I founded uh, my company Corporos Inc. in 2011. So my goal is I'm not going to organize the information of the world. I'm not looking to be Facebook. I, I that, you know take all that away and the ego and everything else, but. I wanted to have that fun and that passion to do my own thing, even if I was starting out in a basement and a, a shed where I amplified DNA. So I set up Corporos and started amplifying DNA on an inverted Christmas tree stand. And <laughs> been really outside of my comfort zone uh, and learned how to network a little bit more, how to speak to people, how to work on creating partnerships, how to work on agreements and contracts and negotiations, the worst word of all. Uh, but over the past couple years, I've started really making some inroads into things that I think can get out there as products and help the world and the developed world is out as well as the third world. Uh, the first thing I did was I was actually looking into listeria and food safety assays. You know, I decided I love chocolate, so I wanted to go to Switzerland. I also love cheese, so I was like, oh, let's go to France. Um, in some of the raw cheeses that are out there, you have to be really careful because uh, you know they're not pasteurized and so listeria can be an issue. I had applied to this uh, French group uh, called YEI, and it must be like young company because I'm not young anymore. Uh, but I won one of these awards, and so they took me over to France and start looking into and building up my company and this kind of thing. And at the time, um, I said, OK, well, I can help you. I can look for listeria in an hour. I don't need to, you know, it doesn't need to take uh, 24 to 48 hours anymore. Uh, to make a long story short, this turned into a little bit of buzzkill, though, because of French regulation. French regulation requires that you have an incubation period or an enrichment period for whatever your cheese sample is of a minimum of 24 hours so it was a little bit of a useless thing to say I can do it in an hour if you needed that 24 hours anyway but it was still a phenomenal experience to learn that and to be there. uh, Last year I started working with some dentists out at UCSF in the greater Berkeley area and uh, we started doing some clinical studies on oral biofilm components Uh, Now, there's a lot of stuff you may be starting to read about, the gut and the microbiome. Um, All that actually starts in your mouth, and we've got a combination of good and bad bacteria in there that keep things in balance, or if they go out of balance, you know, we get out of whack and we get either viruses or we get cavities and what have you. So what I started doing with these guys is taking a couple of those good and bad bacteria, and we're trying to do some assays and ratio those so that you can get an indicator of your oral health and that may someday be an indicator Of your gut health, and further down the pike, also of your cardiovascular health. Uh, And then, more recently, I started working um, on malaria. Now, for whatever reason, uh, I've been fascinated with malaria for a number of years. And in addition to the, you know, the havoc that it causes in the world, it's, um, you know, in nearly 100 countries, and uh, what about two million people contracted it in 2012? I think it was, and. Uh, maybe a quarter of those, depending on the kind of mouth, uh, kind of malaria, died due to lack of appropriate treatment or not being able to get it. Um, one of the fascinating things about the parasite itself is the way it takes your red blood cells hostage. It feeds off of the, the hemoglobin in your blood cells and converts that to heme. Um, but the more fascinating thing is that heme is toxic to the parasite. And the, you know, the parasite figured out over time how to make that not a problem, and it polymerizes this heme and crystallizes it to just shunt it out of its way, so it still keeps doing its thing, still keeps uh, multiplying, and then bursts the cells and goes on to infect more cells. Uh, So while that's a good thing for the parasite, it's obviously a bad thing for us, and that problem kind of fascinated me. Um, It's not an easy thing to just have somebody send you malaria parasites to work with in your basement, so it took me a little while, but now working with another startup out in California nanoscopia, Um, I met some people through New York University and now have a collaboration with them so that they can send me actual blood that is temperature treated so that it has dead parasites as opposed to alive uh, parasites in it and I can run assays on blood infected with malaria in my local environment. The reasons are pretty clear but in addition to They're needing better surveillance and uh, better ways of helping to eradicate malaria in Indonesia, Africa, et cetera. Some of the other problems that go along, though, are the sample prep, the running time for these things, and, again, trying to get away from the centralized lab. Just even to make the blood smears takes a good half hour to do it right, to dry the stuff on the slide, to then fix it, to get your chemicals in there, to stain it, to dry it again before you even get to your microscope. So, I'm working on things also where you can just kind of get up and go with your sample in five minutes as opposed to 30 minutes. One of the reasons why this is important is a lot of the clinics, if you will, kind of look like this, where they're just kind of makeshift, they're going to start dealing with you right here. If you have to send your sample out to a centralized lab and come back, one of the big problems they found in Africa, there are still a lot of nomadic people. You come back in three days, they're gone. They're not there. You can't treat them. So we need tests that do it on the spot, but with more sensitivity than just lateral flow strips or things that um, work with antibodies and give you a stripe as a yes or a no. Uh, This is a typical picture of the way they do the detection. You set up where you can and put your microscope. All these slides were, by the way, um, of the Africa pictures were provided to me by Warren, the um, Worldwide Malaria Anti-Resistant Network, who I've met some people at. Uh, so this, as you may imagine, is not the ideal way to go, setting up your lab and getting your sensitivity and looking to see if inside those blood cells you see the malaria parasites. Nanoscopia, the company that I'm um, partnering with, is developing a handheld, very sensitive microscope, and so the goal is to put my molecular diagnostics into a platform with their optics. Uh, so now I'm on a Gen 5 device, I have these kind of injection molded polypropylene devices. Uh, What I do is I take my special soup that can look for different kinds of bugs or pathogens and I freeze dry that, I lyophilize it, and put them in different chambers. Uh, Now in the prototyping stage here, this is just a disposable one mil syringe, I take the blood and just dilute it in some buffer solution and then inject it into all the wells. And As I described before, if you have blue, it means that whatever you were looking for has amplified, and that bug is present. And if it stays the purpley pink color, it means that it's not there. So those optics are greatly simplified. I so I'm guessing that it's uh, probably pretty close to time, <laughs> and I wanted to uh, summarize and also just open things up um, to a general discussion. Uh, But I wanted to mention that it's fantastic to talk to people in different fields. Uh, My best friend back at Livermore is actually an astronomer that I used to sit very close to in physics. And while my world is more on the nanoscale, um, you know, his world is in parsecs and light years. And that's really hard for me to get my mind around, but when I entered certain projects and certain problems it's so useful to talk to people that have a completely different perspective uh, than your own. I I wanted to say that things connect in very odd ways. You know, when I first switched from polymers to corrosion stuff, I thought that I was closing doors that were never going to reopen, and that wasn't the case. There were a lot of people that early on, you know, got my feathers rustled and I was worried about what outcomes were going to be between either what if you get never, never get another good job, what if, you know, you can't get back into the country. That won't work, we already tried that. And today, that won't work is one of the favorite things for me to hear because it just kind of is an invitation to figure out how to get it to work then. Uh, and lastly, you know, these are not necessarily simple tasks that any of us decide to work on. I, I was never one of those people that knew exactly what I wanted to do, maybe I still don't. Uh, You know, there are certain people that say, oh, I know I want to be a doctor, I know I want to be a lawyer. I was never that person. Um, But I've had a great time kind of meandering around and figuring out the kind of projects that are fun for me that also can help people and improve human health, improve global health, and ideally create some jobs as well. These are the kind of things that are really fun to me and that are rewarding to me. Um, and that I've been able to do and that I'm very, very grateful for. Uh, If I hadn't had people like Dr. Church and Doc Heron years ago to introduce me to just getting on that road to begin with, you know, I don't know, maybe I'd be an accountant today, I have no idea. Um, And I wanted to mention that recently I was asked to speak with a uh, a chemistry scholar that just finished with honors at a, a university out in Washington and she just graduated, she's trying to figure out what to do next and she was so nervous about, you know, should I take this job at the hospital setting or should I take this job with a a, a research company? What do I do? You know, I I don't want to screw it up. Uh, In my opinion, my biased opinion, you know, the only way you can screw it up is by not diving in. There are no wrong answers. I said I was never going to do research, I said I was never going to live in New Jersey, so of course I did research in New Jersey. If you had told me that I was going to do The stuff that I've done, I wouldn't believe you. If you even told me a few years ago that I was going to leave California for a basement in Philadelphia, I would have laughed at you. And yet today I'm happily in a basement in Philadelphia. Um, All these things, I think, make for a, a more enriching life. You meet more people, you get more experiences, you can travel more, it can be a lot of fun. So I just wanted to say to all of you, have fun figuring out and building your own greater good. And I wanted to... Wow, I'll make these white in a minute, so you can actually see my email addresses, or please, if you ever have any questions, please feel free to either call me or text me or anything, and I'd love to discuss any or all this with any of you. Thank you so much for all your time. <laughs>